Well, good morning. Hope you're enjoying the cool, crisp air this morning. I saw a meme on Facebook. Made me laugh uh, pretty good yesterday. I think somebody put on there is uh, like Arkansas is talking. Says, uh, "Hey, fall, where are you?" And then the answer was, "Me and Winter are about to pull up now." And so that's usually how it is. And in Arkansas, you go from one season to you just skip a season to the next. So we may be going from uh, summer right into winter, but nonetheless, uh, we, you got to love it. So between the the death of Joshua, so after the Israelites had had gone into the promised land, the land promised to them, Joshua led them in. They took possession of the land. And between that and the accession of Saul as the first king of Israel, you had this period of time, this span of time, which was pretty much marked by kind of anarchy and confusion to a great degree. So you had the Israelites who would obey, they would disobey, they would be oppressed by a foreign kingdom. God would deliver them. They would obey. They would disobey. They would be oppressed by a foreign kingdom. God would deliver them. So you had this pattern over and over again. And so God had made a covenant with the Hebrew people at Mount Sinai, and He renewed that covenant as they crossed into the promised land to possess the land of Canaan. The land promised them since Abraham. This is their, their, their promise from God, what they've been looking forward to. And so we have a record of this period of time known as the time of the judges. And Scripture tells us that there are... Fifteen people whom this description is ascribed to. And so the Hebrew word we translate as judge in this sense is kind of flexible. And so when we talk about judge, we may think of of Courtney's dad. And so we may think about somebody sitting behind a bench, uh, you know, with a robe on, and they proceed over a courtroom, and and everybody comes in at some formal setting. Well, really, it it wasn't like that. There might have been some formal proceedings, but it was a lot more flexible in this description. And so it can be used for someone who, who would lead the nation in their external affairs as well as internal affairs. And so we shouldn't think of formal courts and long black robes when we think about uh, this term judges here in Scripture, this, this 14 men and one brave woman here. And so in reality, this book of Judges is full of these deliverers that God has chosen, God has raised up, God has appointed for a specific time and a specific purpose to deliver His people from a specific situation. And so this text is more than a history lesson. And in fact, it's, it, it presents God's evaluation of the Israelites based on the covenant that He made with them at Sinai. That's the standard that He's held them to. And so His judgment falls based on how they disobey or disregard that standard or that covenant. So over and over again, the people disobeyed God and, and came under His judgment. And He used these nations and God raises up a deliverer for His people when they cry out for help. But these leaders become worse and worse and things get worse and worse until the nation was virtually in a state of ruin by the end of this book of Judges. And so as puzzling as it might have seemed to us as we've been studying through uh, this uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews to find Gideon or Barak listed among these notables of, of faith held up as example for us in Hebrews 11, we looked at them the last few weeks. It's nearly mind-boggling then when we come to the name of Samson, who was listed and called out as an example of faith. He is selfish. Samson is, is this, what we have from him in Scripture. He's arrogant. He's, he's weak in controlling his lustful urges. He's rude. He's short-tempered. He's vengeful. He's irritatingly overbearing. This man, Samson. And as a result, what we know of his life, he destroys his marriage, his foolishness cost the life of his wife and, and her family and, and his own 
countrymen, the ones that he was raised up to deliver, that God is going to, going to use him to, to deliver from these oppressive people, they don't want anything to do with him. Because Samson, all you bring is trouble. Whenever Samson comes around, things get worse for them instead of better, it seems. And so, it sounds like a hero to imitate, right? Big Samson. Yet, while his example of his life is this failed attempt at self-glorification that we see through all of his actions, his moment of faith becomes a testimony to the goodness of God. And that's what this is all about. So the judges were not intended to be spiritual role models. That's not what their purpose was. That's not why they are brought out in Scripture. Nor was their spirituality a necessary criterion for God using them for His purpose. And so again, a testimony to the providence and the commitment of a salvation-minded God. And so if there ever was a better example of faith the size of a mustard seed accomplishing great things in the hands of an all-powerful God, I think you can look no further because I don't know what else it would be other than this man, Samson. Samson is a vivid example of this internal battle that we all wrestle with, the desires of the heart against the Spirit of God. And so you may remember this, Judges chapter 13 and verse 1. The Israelites again... Here we go, pattern. Again, did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines for 40 years. Now there was a man named Manoah from Zorah, from the Danite tribe, the tribe of Dan. His wife was infertile and childless. And the Lord's angelic messenger appeared to the woman and said to her, You are infertile and childless, but you will conceive and have a son. Now be careful, he says. Do not drink wine or beer and do not eat any food that will make you ritually unclean. Look, you will conceive and have a son. You must never cut his hair, for the child will be dedicated to God from birth. He will begin to deliver Israel from the power of the Philistines. And so Samson's mother was commanded to keep herself pure throughout this pregnancy pure from alcohol and and, and ritually prohibited food. The Israelites had some specific regulations for ritual purity that she was supposed to maintain. Why would he have to remind her to do this? Well, remember what's going on. People are disregarding what God has told them to do. God's people aren't listening to God. And so this messenger says, look, you're going to have a baby. You haven't been able to, but God is going to allow you to have this baby. But you've got to keep it straight. You've got to keep it together here for this. And so it makes it obvious that the blessing of this impossible pregnancy is the purpose of a holy God. And so God has instituted this special vow called a Nazarite vow, which it seems to be implying here upon her. And so this vow, which will be identical to everyone else through an obvious lifestyle adjustment. They were going to look and act differently than other people around them. And one who takes this vow, the Nazarite, has to keep themselves from ingesting any grape-related products. You can't have the grape. You can't have the juice. You can't have the wine that comes from the grape. Nothing connected to the grape must go into your body. Never touch a dead body and never cut your hair under the Nazarite vow. And so you couldn't help but stand out from the crowd. But that was the point. The point was to show yourself set apart, committed, kept holy for the purpose of glorifying God. And so everywhere else in Scripture, you see this voluntary declaration of a Nazarite vow. Paul went through a Nazarite vow for a period of time, always a set period of time. But with Samson, 
God declares He's going to serve me from birth to death. He's going to honor me in His entire life. And so God intended for Samson to be this flag bearer of God's righteousness among the Israelites who had wandered far from God's righteousness and godliness. And so through Samson, God is going to relieve this punishment inflicted upon them by the Philistines who were the new oppressing nation in power. And just as God promised here, chapter 13, verse 24, the child grew and the Lord empowered him. The Lord's Spirit began to control him. Now this stirring of the Spirit that Scripture tells us here is not the same sense we see in Acts chapter 2 and the pouring out of God's Spirit on the day of Pentecost within the works of the church. And so the meaning here is along the lines of being moved or or stirred with this sense of, 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 of purpose, this deep sense of, of devoted patriotism for his people. And so that's the sense here. Samson was fiercely loyal to the Israelite nation and specifically to his tribal family of the Danites, the tribe of Dan. But the other side of this loyalty coin is this stirring that leads to impulsive actions. And so the details we have of Samson are grounded in this impulsiveness. For instance, chapter 14 and verse 1, Samson went down to Timnah where a Philistine girl caught his eye. And when he got home, he told his father and mother, a Philistine girl in Timnah has caught my eye. Now get her for my wife. Now who are the people that are oppressing the Israelites? Who are the people that the Israelites hate right now? The Philistines. Hey, Pop. There's a girl down there that's pretty. Go get her for my wife. Who is she? She's down there with the Philistines. But his father and mother said to him, Certainly, you can find a wife among your relatives or among all our people. You should not have to go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines. But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, because she's the right one for me. Now why on earth would Samson, a devoted Israelite, Marry a daughter of the enemy. Why would he do this? Not to mention one who was devoted to idolatry. That's what the Philistines were all about. The whole reason that Israel was in this pitiful condition they were in was because of their bedding down with the people of the land after God told them to clear them all out. Well, they didn't do it years ago. And so now they're still in this situation. So this goes back to the first years they were in the promised land. And his, his parents tried to persuade him. Sam said, come on, man, let's, 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 I'll go with you. you know, let's, let's go walk out among our people. Surely there's someone here suitable for you. But they, Samson gave in to his own sinful urges. The Bible talks a lot about sinful urges. John writes in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the arrogance produced by material possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And God would make Samson and use Samson's obstinate determination to take this Philistine woman as his wife. God's going to use that as the very means by which he begins this eventual overthrow of the Philistine people. So we read, Now his father and his mother did not realize that this was the Lord's doing because he was looking for an opportunity to stir up trouble with the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines were ruling Israel. Now, this does not mean that God orchestrated or arranged this marriage or even that He approved of it. This phrase points to God's ability to work His greater will even through the disobedience of humanity. So understand that part of it. And there's a similar expression that's used by Joseph. Remember, after he has has, has risen to power, his brothers sold him into slavery. 
And he rose to power second in command in the entire nation of Egypt. And so when his brothers finally confront him, and he reveals to them, I'm your brother whom you sold into slavery, and they're thinking, he's going to kill us now. What does he say? Genesis 15, verse 20, As for you, you, what you did, you meant to harm me, but God intended it for a good purpose, so he could preserve the lives of many, as you can see this day. So how comforting is this? When we realize this, we see from Joseph, and now we realize from Samson, this situation that's about to happen there, this should be a faith instilling moment when we realize that God is not bound by our human action or our inaction. God is not bound by that. That's faith instilling. God is not deterred by my failures and my shortcomings. And so time after time after time, we see examples of God working within and beyond the stumbling and the bumbling of His creation. And so off they go to Timnah. So what's the Nazarite vow? You stay away from the grape, you stay away from the unclean, and you stay away from the barber. And so, which is why I find it no coincidence that as Samson is approaching Timnah, Scripture tells us he's approaching the vineyards, what grows in a vineyard, grapes, for wine. As he approached the vineyard of Timnah, suddenly, air quotes, suddenly a lion appears. So Samson is dangerously close to compromising this purity that God has instilled upon him. So what better way to distract him than a near-death experience? I don't know. It seems logical to me. And this is the first record in Scripture of Samson displaying this supernatural power. And so we don't know that any time in the past that God had actually revealed to him how he was going to use Samson for his greater purpose. And our cultural imagery, and more specifically the artistic expression that we've all grown up with, has created this image of Samson that the Bible does not give us. I'm about to blow some minds here, but we tend to envision Samson as this Arnold Schwarzenegger, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, this big, beefed-up muscle dude, when Scripture never paints that picture. In fact, there are only two things that seemed to separate Samson from other men of his time. One is his Nazarite vow, and the other is in verse 6. What do we read? The Lord's Spirit empowered him, and he tore the lion in two with his bare hands as easily as one would tear a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. So what empowered him? What empowered Samson? His weightlifting regimen? Is that what empowered Samson here? His strict diet of high-quality protein, his, his, his muscle-fueling carbs and his creatine? Is that what did it? P90X. That's what fueled Samson, right? Where did Samson get his power? From his massive biceps, his protruding pectorals, or his thoroughbred thighs? Is that where Samson got this power? This picture of this man that we have? Where did he get it? The Lord's Spirit empowered Samson. I have no reason to believe that Samson was in any better physical shape than any other man of his time, which is why we're going to see later the Philistines were trying to figure out how's he able to do this. If he walked out looking like Arnold, there would be no question because he's pumped. That's why. I don't think he was pumped because they didn't know how he could do it. So Samson, I believe, was a natural man who was empowered at times by the supernatural God. And I would even speculate that Samson was as surprised at his abilities as we are when we read about it, which is probably why he didn't tell his father or mother what he had done. And then that and the fact that he was where? Wandering 
through the vineyards where he probably shouldn't have been. But Samson seems to be prone to wander. His heart is prone to wander. He's physically prone and spiritually prone to wander. And so Samson continued on down to Timnah and he spoke to the girl. And in his opinion, in his eyes, looked good to his eyes, she was just the right one. In his opinion or his eye. Disregard what mom or dad said. Honor your father and mother. Disregard what God has said. God had said, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. See, this deal is apparently sealed and Samson and the folks go back home. And I guess probably to make further arrangements for the ceremony. And so on his return for the marriage, he comes across the rotting carcass of that lion that he had killed sitting there. And seeing a swarm of bees around it, he's like, hey, what's up with this? And he goes and he checks it out, and Samson, unlike Sean, goes over to where the bees are, <laughs> and he's going to see what's happening. And there's a hive there, and so he sees honey in that hive, and he reaches in and he scoops out, he Winnie the Poohs a handful of that honey out to take him as a snack on down the road there. So, Nazarite vow, stay away from the vine, stay away from the dead, stay away from the barber. Now, the dead was specifically human flesh, But I think this is to give us an indication how Samson had disregarded his life of purity, that he would do this. So strike two, right? When Tressa was a little girl, her dad was distracted reading the paper or something. And so she wanted to have a tea party. And so she would come in and she brought a little cup of, you know, water. And so her dad doing whatever he was doing took it and he drank it. Thank you, honey. And so she goes out and, and, and she refills it. She comes back and she gives him another one and he's whatever he's doing. Thank you, honey. Well, by this time, her mom was a little kind of puzzled. Where's she getting this? How's she getting up in the sink getting this water? And so she follows her this time. And as she follows and looks around the corner, Tressa's dipping that cup into the toilet and bringing it back to her dad. And she said, hey, Jack, do you know where she's getting this water? <laughs> he said, where? She said, from the toilet. And so you, know, you can't fault a toddler for that. But Samson knew full well that he was sharing tainted honey with his mom and dad. I mean, what a jerk. What a jerk. He knew where the honey came from. They didn't. God's law forbade this ritual impurity. And I think Samson's violating here. He becomes ritually unclean. They had no idea, yet Samson did. So now at the, the, the wedding party, Philistine dudes say, Hey, Samson, we, we, we notice that you've got no entourage. So we're going to hook you up, man. We're going to hook you up with some boys to hang out with. And Samson, who hated all of, all of them, except this woman apparently, he puts his pride on display. He says, Okay, hey, I've got a riddle for you boys. I've got something I want to share with you here. He says, If you can solve it by the end of the week, I'm going to hook you all up with a new outfit to wear. But if you can't solve it by the end of the week, by the end of our party here, then you're going to hook me, each one of you going to hook me up with some new clothes. And so, Judges 14 and verse 14, we read, He says, out of, the, out of the one who eats came something to eat, and out of the strong one came something sweet. Now we're like, it's obvious what this is. They had no clue. They're like, oh, you know, they're... Real Philistine dudes, and they're probably all half drunk at this party. And so they're sitting around trying to figure it out for three days. They could not figure it out. They had no clue, and they were so frustrated, and they were so furious, and they told his bride-to-be, they said, you get the answer from Samson, or we're going to burn you, and we're going to burn your whole family. These good people, right? These Philistines that Samson's ready to marry into. 
So Samson's bride cried on his shoulder and said, You must hate me. You do not love me. You told the young men a riddle, but you have not told me the solution. He said to her, Look, I have not even told my father or mother. Do you really expect me to tell you? And boy, oh boy, she cried on his shoulder until the party was almost over. And fi- that's not, not that day, but that week. Finally, on the seventh day, he told her because she had nagged him so much. Then she told the young men the solution to the riddle. So Samson, she wore him down. And so Samson was, was furious then when they came in and they were able to solve this riddle. He was furious. Or would we say righteously indignant? I don't know. We've got to be the judge here. Verse 19, the Lord's Spirit empowered him. And he went down to Ashkelon and he killed 30 men. He took their clothes and gave them to the men who had solved the riddle. He was furious as he went back home. So not endorsed, not encouraged, not directed to... What does Scripture say? He was empowered, empowered to do what he wanted to do. And those Philistines living in Ashkelon must have have thought, what in the world, man? (laughs) He rolls into this town and starts killing people. What in the world, this crazy guy? Empowered by the Lord's Spirit. Samson was impulsive. And he was vengeful. And he was mortal. And God used the weakness of Samson to display God's strength in bringing judgment on these Philistines. See, the strength of the believer depends wholly upon the power of the Spirit of God. See, this wasn't an overnight trip for him to travel this distance. And so in his rage and in his narrow-mindedness, Samson abandons this new bride, or this bride-to-be. And so by the time he returns, her dad's done giving her away. I mean, he's thinking, I got a dowry, I got a payment from Samson. He's disappeared. I'm going to marry her off to somebody else and I'll get, I'll get some more loot for her. I'm making some more money here. And Samson comes back and he's enraged again. And so Samson said to them, this time, not, not like last time, this time I'm justified in doing the Philistines harm. So he's trying to rationalize himself, I guess. But he, so, so, okay, Samson, you mean this time as opposed to the previous death and carnage that you've inflicted upon people. That's the difference here. So Samson, Samson goes out and he captures 300 jackals. Probably a jackal is more better description of this animal here. And he ties them in pairs with a torch in between their tails and sends them into the Philistine grain fields. I bet you boys never did that at Harding for Pledge Week, did you? Something that, that radical. Can you imagine? I mean, we've got to think about this side. He torched the whole countryside. But you know what's missing from this scene? What's missing from this scene? It didn't say anything about the Spirit of God, did it? It didn't say the Spirit of God empowered him to do it this time. See, other times these feats of torment have been marked by this Spirit of God empowering him, but Scripture doesn't say that this time. And there's nothing to indicate that Samson did this in one day or he did it in one fell swoop. So there's not really a necessary implication of some miraculous intervention. Nonetheless, the Philistines were punished and then they retaliated by burning Samson's wife and her family. And so time passes and the Philistines go after Samson. And we read here in verse 14, But the Lord's Spirit, there it is again, the Lord's Spirit empowered him 
The ropes around his arms were like flax dissolving in fire and they melted away from his hands. And he happened to see a solid jawbone of a donkey. He grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. So they came to, his people came to get him. And they said, Samson, we've got to turn you in, man, because they're about to do some bad stuff to us. He's like, yeah, yeah, okay. So he, they, he lets them tie him up. And then as a, he gets in the middle of the Philistine camp and the Spirit of the Lord empowers him and he breaks them just like they were nothing. And he finds the jawbone of a donkey and he kills a thousand of them with it. Now, to kill a thousand warriors, even at super speed, probably took about four hours of continuous combat, even for a spirit-empowered Samson here. Which is why I think we read in verse 18 that he was very thirsty now. And so he cried out to the Lord and said, You have given your servant this great victory, but now must I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the Philistines. And for all of his flaws, it's, it's, it's something to see here that Samson still recognizes God as his great provider, even in the middle of his own self-absorption. And God still recognizes Samson's prayer. And so he provides him with water in a desert. And for 20 years, then Samson was a thorn in the side of the Philistines, and God used him to punish them. And then one day, Samson went to Gaza, where his eyes, for the umpteenth time, lay upon this maiden... They misled him, and he falls in love with a woman named Delilah, who the enemy now uses to get to the source of Samson's strength. They couldn't figure out what was empowering him. And true to form, Samson plays this cat and mouse with her. What's your secret, honey? Well, you tie me up with fresh bowstrings. Aha! Fooled you. Oh, honey. Okay, okay, okay. Tie me up with brand new ropes. Aha! Fooled you. Oh, come on now. Okay, see, see my long flowing hair? Weave it into the fabric of that loom over there. And I can't escape. So she weaves it in and, Aha! Fooled ya! Can you imagine this? Delilah was so frustrated at him. And so, deja vu, she nagged him. <laughs> she nagged him every day and pressured him until he was sick to death of it. And finally, he told her his secret. He said to her, My hair has never been cut. For I have been dedicated to God from the time I was conceived. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me. I would become weak and be just like all other men. And there was something in his voice, something in his eyes, something in this connection, because she realized then that he is telling the truth. And so she waited till he slept. And she called a man in, cut off the hair. So now the Philistines had their moment. They burst in. Samson awoke thinking, I'm going to get you again. And one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture is written. He did not realize that the Lord had left him. He did not realize the Lord had left him. He didn't know. He was blinded by his own arrogance and, 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 and having taken God's gift for granted so many times, Samson didn't even realize that the Lord had left him. Had left him. Not deserted him, but left him to the consequences of his own choices. Flirting with the vine, strike one. Handling the carcass, strike two. Giving up the, the visible, the, the, the outward display of his vow of commitment to God. 
Strike three. And Samson was wrong, by the way. His hair was not the source of his strength. His hair was a symbol. His hair was the symbol of his devotion to God, and now it lay in a pile on the floor next to his ego. And so they gouged his eyes out. They gouged out his eyes, this great champion of Israel, who, who at times displayed these godlike abilities in the face of their gods that they called upon. And now he's being led about in chains. Yeah, we showed these Israelites, our God is bigger than your God. Look at your God here, eyes gouged out, crying like a baby. Who's going to fight for you now, huh? The same one who's always been fighting for them. The same one who's never stopped fighting for them. The great I Am is who is going to continue to fight for them. And so when they really started celebrating, they said, call for Samson so he can entertain us. Let's be entertained by this groveling, blind wimp that we've got in front of us. So they summoned Samson from the prison and he entertained them. It doesn't mean he danced around. It means just in their presence they were amused by this display. They made him stand between two pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held his hand, Position me so I can touch the pillars that support the temple. Then I can lean on them. Now the temple was filled with men and women and all the rulers of the Philistines were there. There were 3,000 men and women on the roof watching Samson entertain. And Samson called to the Lord, O Master, Lord, remember me. Strengthen me just one more time, O God, so I can get swift revenge against the Philistines for my two eyes. (laughs) This is only the second time in this Scripture that we read of Samson calling on the Lord. The first is when he thought he was, he was dying of thirst. You remember that? And then now the second. Neither time does Samson invoke God's will, but rather he tries to impose his own will. And Samson wants revenge, not for the sake of God, not for the sake of the Lord's righteousness, but for the loss of Samson's eyes, and ultimately for the loss of his own pride. And so Samson took hold of the two middle pillars that supported the temple. And he leaned against them with his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed hard. And the temple collapsed on the rulers and all the people in it. And he killed many more people in his death than he had killed during his life. Wow! What a story! What a story! Why? Why does God allow Samson to kill more Philistines in that one temple-dropping act than he does his whole time as a judge? Because God remains faithful to His people, even if Samson is an idiot. And even if I am. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. That's what the Bible is all about. How many relationships have you left along the way because someone betrayed you? Someone rejected you? Someone treated you unkindly so you just forget you? Or somebody just plain old got on your nerves so you didn't want anything to do with them anymore? How many times have you done that in your lifetime? Not our God. It's not how God works. That's not how He treats us. He is faithful to us. And that His faithfulness 
is what empowers us to live by faith. See, Samson, like Gideon, like Barak, he was commended for the little faith he did have. Because little is much when God is in it. And yet Scripture says that we today have been provided something better than these have. So we must keep living by faith. Living by faith. Hebrews 12 and verse 2, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set out for Him, He endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken His seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Think of Him who endured such opposition against Himself by sinners, so that you may not grow weary in your souls and give up. See, God told His parents that Samson is going to begin to deliver Israel from the power of their enemies. That's why God raised him up. That's why God appointed him and used him. But through Jesus, God has completed that deliverance of all people through His death and His resurrection. That's why God raised him up. And despite my failings, despite my forgetfulness, despite my sabotage of my own life, God is the real superhero. He's the only superhero. God is faithful. He is pure. He is holy. Because of that, I can put my faith in Him. I can trust Him. I can lean on Him. I can give my life to Him. What have you given your life to this morning? What are you holding on to so tight that your hands are numb and your spirit is too? God calls you to release that. Give that over to Him. Make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior and receive deliverance from the bondage of of failure and of hopelessness and of regret, of sin. That's life in Jesus Christ. This morning, if you're ready to place your life in the hands of Jesus, be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, to be washed clean by His blood, His sacrifice, so that God can raise you up to be a new person, a new life, empowering you not with superhuman strength, but by the gift of His Spirit as He leads and guides you into a righteous life. Will you make that commitment today? And if at once you had made that commitment, but you've strayed away, you're wandering through, through the fields, through the grapes, through the forbidden land, God calls you back to His path to walk with Him once again, to ask forgiveness of that sin. And He is good and just and ready to forgive you. And this morning, as we assemble together, as the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters in the same struggle of this flesh, if we can help you in any way this morning, will you come as we stand and sing?